I've entitled it, that is a sermon, I Have Overcome the World. And we will see from the context how he has overcome the world. A little while, you hear that phrase repeated over and over again. In fact, in three statements, three separate statements in our passage, such as in this verse number 16, a little while and you shall see me, you shall not see me, and again, a little while and you shall see me because I go to the Father. Is the Lord Jesus going back to heaven? I contend that he's not, at least not yet, and that his reference to a little while is not about his returning to the Father in his ascension to his glory, but a little while is in reference to his death, burial, and resurrection from the dead. The Upper Room Discourse was a very intimate and personal conversation that Christ had with his 11, the 12th Judas Iscariot, having departed to do the work that Satan had him to do, and that is in betraying our Lord. In John 13, 1, which precedes this Upper Room Discourse, which covers, by the way, John 14 through 17. It is said by John, the evangelist, Now, before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour was come, that he should depart out of the world unto the Father, having loved his own which were in the world, he loved them unto the end. Now, in 24 hours, he would be dead. He told them, that is the 12 and first 11 in the upper room, that 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 was to happen. He said, for example, that he would be delivered unto the Gentiles. He would be mocked and spitefully entreated and spitted upon him. And they would scourge him and put him to death. And on the third day, he would rise again. He said in our chapter of, of John that we are expositing, that is the gospel of John. In verse 5, but now I go my way to him that sent me. What else could that have meant in their minds but that he was about to die and return to heaven? And so it was not a case of their being ignorant of what was ahead for their master, which was his ultimate demise. But like any household facing death, it is hard to imagine to, or to accept the passing of a loved one, especially when the Lord gives them a deathbed experience of over time. It's like our loved ones that are ill with a death-threatening sickness. And so like a loving father, our Lord would prepare them for the inevitable offering of the cross. As it is said, for example, in one place in Hebrews 9, and as it is appointed unto men once to die, and after this the judgment, so Christ was once offered to bear the sins of many. Now how would Christ prepare them? This is the question. How would Christ prepare his disciples, his people? 
First, Christ prepared his disciples with the truth. Truth is what you need to, to say. Don't, don't keep the truth from those sick loved ones, for example, from telling them what, what, what really is going on. Don't hide the truth. You, you hurt more than, you harm and hurt more than you help when you do that. Christ prepared his, his disciples with the truth, and that is that his party would bring great sorrow and was already doing so in their hearts and their minds. He said in verse 20 that they would weep and lament. These are expressions of people that are mourning someone who's already dead, such as in the passing of, of uh, some in our congregation um, and, and, and others as well, family, friends over this past year. But in the case of the disciples, it was their Lord and ours. But not all would share their sorrow. In fact, most wouldn't. It says in verse 20 also, but the world shall rejoice and ye shall be sorrowful. You will also be sorrowful at the fact that, that you want others to also recognize the work of Christ. And they won't. R.C. Sproul explains Jesus was talking about the supreme conflict, the conflict that pitted him against the world, the flesh, and the devil, who couldn't wait for Jesus' blood to be spilled on the cross and for his corpse to be put in a tomb. The world is going to be throwing their hats into the air tomorrow, but for you there will be grief, lamentation, and tears. Unquote. And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. But Christ also prepares his disciples by reassuring them that their sorrow would be short-lived. Three days to be exact. Verse 20, but your sorrow shall be turned into joy. A comfort to believers at the death of a Christian family member or friend is that Joy that awaits us when we are reunited in heaven. Isn't that the sense, at least amongst believers at a funeral of, of a fellow believer? Like David at the death of his baby in 2 Samuel 12, 22 and 23. 2 Samuel 12, verses 22 and 23. And he said, while the child was yet alive, I fasted and wept. For I said, who can tell whether God will be gracious to me that the child may live? But now he is dead. Wherefore should I fast? Can I bring him back again? I shall go to him. Note that. I shall go to him. Meaning that he is in heaven. He is a, a covenant child. He is of the covenant of grace. That's the understanding. That's the teaching of scripture. That was the understanding of David. That he would see his little one who was taken from him so early in his life. But he shall not return to me. So, what a comfort that is, is it not? But with the death of the Savior, the disciples would see him again in this life. 
Their sorrow would be short-lived because Christ's death would be short-lived. And he likens it back in our passage in, in, in John 16 to what? A woman in labor, in verse 21. A woman, when she is in travail, has sorrow because her hour is come. But as soon as she is delivered of the child, she remembereth no more the anguish for joy that a man is born into the world. At the end of that little time, which Christ would be buried and in the tomb. At the end of that, no more pain, no more sorrow, no more crying, because no more death. Because Christ lives forevermore. He was a high priest who offered up himself as the supreme sacrifice, which all the animal sacrifices of the Old Testament pointed to. And found their fulfillment in even the Lamb of God that taketh away the sin of the world. It says in Hebrews 9, and they truly were many Old Testament priests. I added that, that Old Testament in there for good measure. Because they, those priests, sinful priests at that, were not suffered or allowed to be continued by reason of death. They died. But this man, because he continued ever because he rose from the dead, has an unchangeable priesthood. Wherefore, he is able to save them to the uttermost that come unto God by him, seeing he ever liveth to make intercession for them. That is why we have perfect assurance. Like that hymn, perfect assurance, Jesus is mine. Oh, what a glory, a glory divine. Back in our passage in verse 22, he says, I will see you again. And your heart shall rejoice, and your joy no man taketh from you, because in turn you will see me. At first, not at first, like in the case of uh, the first visitor at the tomb who supposed that he was a gardener, Mary Magdalene, but even she would come to see her Lord again and not to mourn his passing. And a side note, uh, this is just my own. They say men cannot know the pain of childbearing. Based on Christ's testimony, I would beg to differ. Now the third and final preparation. Christ prepares his disciple by assuring them of his Father's love through faith and love in himself. Verse 27. For the Father himself loveth you. Imagine that. The Lord saying, the Father loves you. You can bank on the, the veracity and the truth and the faithfulness of that promise. If our Lord says to you, the Father loves you. You may struggle with your faith. You, your faith may be so small at times. You may wonder sometimes if you're even a Christian by the life that you lead and yet at the end of that day and I thank God that he gives us days because it enables us to bring closure to our struggles and, and, and that by our coming to the throne of grace in prayer he tells us Father loves you, and that is because I love you. 
and, and that you love me and have believed that I came from God. Turn to John 14, verse 6. John 14, verse 6. You know this verse? I think, I think probably everybody could recite this, this one. Jesus saith unto him, meaning Thomas, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. Now, most of us think of this as coming to the Father when we die and go to heaven. Wouldn't you agree? This is what immediately comes or flashes into your mind. Yet, doesn't our relationship with God the Father begin here on earth when we come to Christ? In fact, the Lord declared to Mary Magdalene, when, whom I referred to earlier at the open tomb, she discovered that his body was missing. And then when she discovered her Lord and was immediately just changed at that moment from sorrow to joy. He said to her, I don't touch me because I ascend, I have yet to ascend unto my Father and your Father and to my God and your God. God becomes your Abba Father, the Bible says in Romans 8.15. Romans 8.15 he becomes your daddy. That's an intimate word in the Aramaic uh, of very, very personal between a father and his children that are close. My papa or my daddy. For you have not received the spirit of bondage again to fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption whereby we cry. Abba, Father. It is the cry of a child that has become acquainted with his father and his mother, or her father and her mother, uh, that uh, shows the bond between them, shows the intimacy and the closeness that is probably closer than even husband and wife, some say, you know, the loss, for example, of a, of a child that, that precedes uh, your passing um, is one of the most difficult deaths to have happen in the household because it's unexpected. And this brings to my mind uh, those that abort their children and how ghastly a thought, how horrible a uh, thing that, that, that must be in the eyes of God. and. I mean, if it is in our hearts, how much more in God's? And that is because we are fearfully and wonderfully made. Christ adds the following in verse 26. At that day you shall ask in my name, and I say not unto you that I will pray the Father for you. It doesn't mean he's not going to pray, continue to pray to his Father in your behalf or in our behalf, because as our high priest, he is interceding right now, at the Father's right hand for us. But what he is saying is here, what he is indicating here is I won't have to pray for you 
You can pray for yourself, but in my name. You have access to the throne of grace through me, in my name, praying in my name. You can pray to the Heavenly Father yourself, verse 23. Whatsoever you shall ask the Father in my name, he will give it you. He will give it to you. And then he says in verse 24, Hitherto you have asked nothing in my name. Ask and you shall receive that your joy may be full. Meaning, I think, you have just begun to pray in my name. You've just begun to tap into the resources and the wealth and all that only God can supply you and me. My God is able to supply all your riches in glory by Christ Jesus, the Apostle Paul declared. He also said in Ephesians 3, 20 and 21, now unto him that is able to do exceeding abundantly above all that we ask or think according to the power that worketh in us, that is the Holy Spirit, that is that is, that is his power. Unto him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus through all ages world without end, amen. He could even ask, answer prayers that don't enter into our mind, needs that are in our lives and needs that are out there galore that are there to be addressed for the uh, by the asking but which through are being overwhelmed or being too tired at night to pray uh, whatever it may be that uh, may be an excuse or maybe a reason uh, for our not praying he is able to supply all of them such as when I pray for y'all and don't cover all the bases and I know I don't because afterwards I remember oh boy this person was in a situation and needed immediate prayer and I overlooked that but, but God doesn't God doesn't he never overlooks anything because he has a power to save he has a infinite wisdom and knowledge and then he says in verse 28 I came forth from the father and I'm Come into the world and again I leave the world and go to the Father and yes after my resurrection I will ascend back to my starting point my Heavenly Father and now yours that's why I came so that I may as it were introduce you to and, and, and get you to meet it's at a very difficult place however it is illustrated in the Old Testament by the Ark of the Covenant between the cherubim where the blood of the sacrifice is sprinkled where the meeting place is to take place and that is the cross of Jesus Christ but that was what was required for that to take place the disciples became excited. Like all of his children, they understood this. The language of God's love is everlasting love. Because in verse 29, it says that his disciples said to him, Lo, now speakest thou plainly, and speakest no proverb. Meaning you're not speaking figuratively, you're not speaking prophetically and terminology that doesn't have any connection 
because there's so many things missing. There's so many gaps. Uh, even as disciples, you, you didn't teach, tell us everything that you wanted to tell us plainly because it wasn't, it wasn't the time. And it would never be the time. It would take the Holy Spirit to come alongside them afterwards to do what Christ as an individual person was unable to do. Not given the time, not given the opportunity, but in time they will know. And in time they will even give explanation to the work of Christ that was necessary for the church to understand the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so, in verse 30, it says, Now are we sure that thou knowest all things? <laughs> they believe here that he was God, the third person of the, the, the second person of the Blessed Trinity, the Son of God. But they were reassured in their hearts. They were uh, confirmed in their conviction that everything that he said is absolutely true. And at this point, his resurrection hadn't happened yet. But when that time would come, then they will really know, if you will. And needest not that any man should ask thee, by this we believe that thou camest forth from God. In other words, they were thankful for this preparation that our Lord made for them to be able to make it through what would be probably their worst ordeal next to their own sacrifice of their lives for the gospel. And then in verse 31, Jesus answered them, do you now believe? Now I know there are those who uh, who make commentaries that uh, believe that uh, Christ is saying, now you believe? I mean, after all I done and said before and I'm saying that I'm reiterating now to you again now you believe and not before I don't follow that tact rather I, I, I believe that's because he put it in a way that was very personal and intimate and showing again the love of God and thus when he says do you now believe meaning are we are we on par? Are we on the same page? Are we good to go? That's what I believe he, he is saying here. So good, because you will need it for what is ahead of you, according to verse 32. Behold, the hour cometh, yea, is now come that you shall be scattered, every man to his own, and shall leave me alone. Peter, you will deny me three times. And the rest of you, you will desert me and will desert your post. The shepherd will be smitten and the sheep will be scattered. But this is why I'm preparing you. And then he gives us his last statement, verse 33. These things I have spoken unto you, that in me you might have peace. In the world you shall have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. Why peace in the Lord? Because he has overcome the world for them. He has not conquered this world. He has not become the, uh, the ultimate emperor of, of the universe by becoming uh, the emperor, the king, 
over the earth, like so many nations being for power, one against the other, or endeavoring to do. That's not what he is after. Even when he was tempted by the, the evil one in the wilderness, that was not what he was after. He, he could have bowed to, to Satan, and Satan would have granted him all these kingdoms. But no, that is not what he is after. His servants could have set him free so that he could become their liberator and conquer the Roman Empire. But that was not what he was after. What he was after was a spiritual kingdom. What he is after are the hearts and minds and souls of his people that he came to redeem. And how did he do it? Well, if you turn to Colossians 1, 12 and following, I'll, 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 I'll tell you. I'll tell you by letting the scriptures be the one to tell you. In Colossians chapter 1, beginning at verse 12. Giving thanks unto the Father, which hath made us meet to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in light, who hath delivered us from the power of darkness, and hath translated us into the kingdom of his dear Son. I just love that phraseology. The kingdom of his dear Son. Very precious in whom we have redemption through his blood, even the forgiveness of sins, who is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of every creature. And then jump to 19. For it pleased the Father that in him should all fullness dwell. 20. And having made peace through the blood of, the, of his cross, by him to reconcile all things unto himself, by him I say, whether they be things in earth or things in heaven. And yes, one day all will be reconciled. The heavens and the earth that have been afflicted with the curse, but moreover, those that are his people, that are innumerable as the stars in the sky and as the sand by the seashore, will be at peace. And then he says, uh, and I, I know I divided up some verses, in verse 32, back at our passage, John 16, he says at the end, and yet I am not alone, because the Father is with me. In other words, from this point on, my brethren beloved, my dear disciples, don't be overly concerned about me anymore. Because the Father is with me. I think of a, of a passage, a prophecy actually, uh, that has been attributed to Christ, and especially in his not having seen corruption in, in Sheol, in the place of death, in those three days. Because he, he should actually begin that process of of uh, breaking his body, breaking down uh, already. Uh, but, but there was no sign of that. In Psalm 16, we turn to it. Beginning at verse 8. I have set the Lord always before me. And again, read this as, these are, as if these are the words of Christ, which some of them are actually even one in this passage. 
I have set the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I shall not be moved. Therefore, my heart is glad and my glory rejoiceth. My flesh also shall rest in hope. For thou wilt not suffer my soul in hell, that is the hell of Calvary. Neither wilt thou suffer thine holy one to see corruption, even the corruption of the grave. Thou wilt show me the path of life meaning your resurrection. In thy presence is fullness of joy. At thy right hand there are pleasures forevermore, meaning his ascension. The Lord prepared them well, I believe. And the Lord is preparing us, and hopefully he's preparing us well, even as he did his disciples, first with godly sorrow. Verse 20, while the world rejoices, you will be sorrowful over sin. 2 Corinthians 7, 10, it says, For godly sorrow worked the repentance unto salvation, not to be repented of, but the sorrow of the world worketh death. Hopefully Christ is preparing us well by following that up with the joy of the Lord as our strength. Verse 20, But your sorrow shall be turned into joy. For God's anger endureth but a moment on the cross, in his favor is life. We may endure for a night, but joy cometh in the morning. That is the morning of his resurrection. And then lastly, he prepares us by confirming the love of the Father through faith and love in himself. In Romans chapter 5, I'm going to conclude with this. From five, some, I'm sorry, from verses one through five. Romans chapter five, verses one through five. Turn to it. This is the word of God. Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ by whom also we have access by faith into this grace wherein we stand and rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. And not only so, but we glory in tribulation also, knowing that tribulation worketh patience, and patience experience, and experience hope, and hope maketh not ashamed, because the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Spirit, which is given unto us. There is the confirmation. The confirmation is the Holy Spirit that we talked about in detail last time, who is the one that is the advocate for Christ to our hearts, and who is now also the advocate for the Father. And that the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who is given unto us. I trust that this helps in our preparation for what is ahead. Even today, even this week, even in this coming year. For our Lord assures us himself. These things I have spoken unto you, that in me you might have peace. In the world you shall have tribulation, but be of good cheer, I have overcome the world. Let us pray.
Oh, Heavenly Father, help us. Help us as we are weak. And yet, you are strong. Your grace, indeed, is sufficient unto us and how we need it. We cannot live without it. We are, Lord, at your mercy. Show us mercy. Show us grace. For this time, and even, Lord, the rest of this day, 